Uh, we are, uh, just so you know, we're in the beginnings of a, a sermon series that we're going to make a run at for several months, actually moving all the way up to Easter Sunday, uh, a series entitled Jesus is Greater, a study of the book of Hebrews, which is a, a fascinating book of the Bible. Uh, if you've ever read it, uh, you know that uh, it's unique in that it shows us uh, in a way that no other book of the Bible shows us that the entire Bible is threaded together into a tapestry that, that tells one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. Um, at its heart, we've talked about this for weeks now, the book of Hebrews is a, it's a word of exhortation. Uh, it's a warning. It's an appeal, which is why toward the end of the letter, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. It's a warning, which is why you have that language, bear with. Warnings can be found through, throughout this entire book of the Bible. Um, the warnings actually shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. They're meant to spur us on to continue to, to look at, to behold, to see and savor this Jesus who's the hero of this entire book. And so you could say it this way. The warnings are not just for those who find themselves among the Christian population who are not really Christ followers, but rather the warnings are also God's grace in helping Christ followers to continue to fight the good fight of faith, to continue to fix their eyes on and behold this superior son of God, Jesus Christ. Because you and I haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews declares to us the urgency of continuing to behold this Jesus, to continue to be changed by our beholding of this Jesus. And, and he actually helps us do that very thing. He doesn't just tell us to see and savor Jesus. He puts this Jesus whom he wants us to see and savor on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. We've seen that for weeks now. And so, yes, this book is, on the one hand, meant to sober us, but it's also meant to bring us great comfort, hope, and joy. And so my prayer this morning is that we would yet again find ourselves seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Or if you, if you come in this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, that you'd find yourself seeing and savoring Jesus Christ for the first time in your life. That, that we would consider him as a people gathered. That we would hold fast our confidence in him. That, that we would boast in him as our greatest hope. And so it's with that being said that if you have a Bible, you can open up to... Chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, that's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if, you, if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little difficult to follow, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let's do this this morning. Uh, let's, let's actually read the passage in its fullness. It's a little shorter passage, so we can do that this morning uh, a little more readily. Uh, let's, let's read... Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, leading up to verse 6. And then we'll pray and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. It says this, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. God, we have a great opportunity this morning as a people assembled 
in the name of Jesus Christ to, to see this Jesus, to behold this Jesus, to fix our eyes on this Jesus in the fullness of his splendor, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his grace and love, and to be changed by this Jesus. And so I pray that we would behold, that we would see what you long for us to see as we take a look at these six verses and the revelation of the superior Son of God found within, but not so that we might acquire more information to store away in a theological ivory tower, but rather would be moved, would be changed, would be affected by what we see in such a way that it radically shapes our lives as we leave this place. God, I cannot do that. All I can do is proclaim the beauty of the Word of God and what's found therein. Holy Spirit, uh, we need you to awaken us uh, from our slumbers. We need you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive. Would you move? Would you, would you work in this place mightily, uh, both at an individual level and collectively, uh, for the good of this body? It's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. If you've been around for the entirety of this series, or even just the majority of this series, we've been running at this thing for, I think, about five or six weeks now. Uh, I would anticipate that at some point, many of us are going to begin to feel a little bit of an angst, a little bit of an impatience, uh, a a little bit of a, uh, this thing that tends to happen, particularly with books of the Bible like this, where you start to go, when are we going to get past the fixing our eyes on Jesus? When are we going to get past the considering Jesus? When are we going to get past the seeing and savoring, the beholding of Jesus and kind of move toward the the practical, pragmatic outworkings of this beholding of Jesus in the Christian life? Um, Particularly with the book of, of the Bible, like the book of Hebrews, I think we feel that more than we would with other books of the Bible um, as, uh, as we talked about in, in our staff meeting this week, the book of Hebrews is somewhat of a slow burn. You're just kind of, you're, you're building on this case that Jesus is greater than, and, and there's this litany of things that make this list of, of who and what Jesus is greater than, and the author of Hebrews is going to slowly walk us through all of the arguments that, that would put on display the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and, it, and it's really only uh, when you get toward the back end of this letter that you begin to see the commands, the imperatives uh, that, that are more specified than look at him, consider him, see and savor him. And so if you're feeling any sense of that or um, to kind of cut things off at the pass as we move forward because we're going to continue to talk about the glory of Jesus Christ and, and the call of the church as we gather in this place and as we leave this place for weeks, even months to come is going to be consider Jesus He was just put on display. Consider him yet again. Behold him. Fix your eyes on him. See and savor him. To help with that, I want to share a quote from a book that I started reading a couple days ago entitled The Gospel, which is a great title for a book, by the way, by Ray Ortland Jr. And he says this. He says, at conversion, so when you became a Christian, at conversion, what did we do? He says, we gave ourselves to him, to Jesus. We put ourselves in his arms. We surrendered to his love. And we started changing by his power. But as in any healthy marriage, 
We are to give ourselves to him over and over again. We gave ourselves to him once, and we give ourselves to him constantly in trust and surrender, moment by moment. Over time, then, he faithfully brings forth his fruit through us. That the Christian life is that in its essence, at its foundation. It's a continuing to see and savor the superior superior son of God. and, And it's in that continuing to behold, continuing to give ourselves to him, that he, he really does truly begin to change us. And so we need the foundation in the beginnings of this book of the Bible to set the stage for what's to come when we get to the end, when you encounter those imperatives of what it looks like to actually live this thing out on the ground. We live that out in light of seeing and savoring, beholding this superior son of God that the author of Hebrews is just going to keep putting on display over and over and over again. And so I love it. I'm excited about where we're going as we move on to chapter 3, the author of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is better than angels for a couple of chapters now. Angels were the mediators of God's law. Now he's going to seek to establish the argument that Jesus is better than Moses himself, the one who brought God's law directly to the people. And so as you pick up in verse 1, he says, Therefore, now if you've been around long enough, you know what I'm about to do. We're going to stop for a second because... We, we talked about this at the beginning of chapter 2. Anytime we encounter the word therefore, it's a bridge from where we've come to where we're going. So if you go back to chapter 1, because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, because Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, because Jesus is the preexistent creator of all things, because Jesus upholds the, the, the world, the universe, by the word of his power, Because Jesus made purification for sins through the shedding of his blood. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. Because Jesus is God's ultimate and final message to mankind. Because Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapter 2. Because Jesus set aside the scepter and the crown and took on flesh in humble sacrificial love. Because Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Because Jesus has experienced true temptation like us, yet without sin. Because Jesus identifies with you and me as brothers and sisters. Because Jesus, the last Adam, accomplished what the first Adam failed to accomplish in his garden so very long ago. Because Jesus lived a perfect, obedient life all the way to the cross. Because Jesus tasted death for you and me. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God on behalf of wrath-deserving sinners like you and me. Because Jesus has delivered the death blow to the devil of hell. Because Jesus has delivered us from enslavement to death and the fear associated with death. Because Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Because Jesus brings sons and daughters like you and me to glory. Because Jesus is the one with dominion over all creation in the world to come. Chapter 3, Therefore. By the way, if you're new around here, We say the name of Jesus a lot. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Let me just stop there for a second because a couple weeks ago we encountered a heavy, sobering warning. And we're going to encounter another half dozen of those as we work our way through the book of the Bible. And so I think it's imperative when we see encouraging phrases like this to stop for a second and to acknowledge what all these phrases entail. It says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, because of 
who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished for us, we share in a heavenly calling as brothers and sisters who are declared holy. That's unbelievable, okay? Number one, let's break that down. If your trust and hope is in Jesus Christ, you're declared brother or sister. That's certainly a reminder of what we were told in in chapter two, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his siblings. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature is not ashamed to call you his sibling if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And that makes us siblings of one another, a truth that has radical, radical implications on our understanding of of both the church as a family and the importance of unity in the church. Secondly, if your trust and hope is in Jesus Christ, you're declared holy. I don't know how that sits with you, but that's gloriously good news to me as a sinner in need of a Savior. It's not that the author of Hebrews is congratulating God's people for living an impressive enough life. If that was the case, the Jesus of, of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 wouldn't have had to die. We could just get after it ourselves and claw our way to God through our own good works. That's not what the gospel declares. We are declared holy not because we put together a good enough resume, but because Jesus lived the holy life that we could never live and offered himself as a holy sacrifice on our behalf. That Jesus died for our unholiness and gifts us his holy record. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. I remember in elementary school, the great exchange for me was if I could convince a kid to take my apple and give him my gusher, his Gushers fruit snacks to me. Like, that was a, that was a big, big deal to me. That's, that is nothing, okay, compared to the gloriously unfair trade that Luther declares to be the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin record and gives me his perfect righteous record to, to hold before a holy God. Thus, you and I can be declared holy because of who Jesus is, what he's done, so that the Christian life is really living in light of your true identity. We've talked about this a number of times before. If you're married, on your wedding day, you are declared to be one flesh, but unless you are the cosmic level exception to the rule, I would dare say that you did not wake up the next day and go, man, I got this thing. I know my wife's love languages. I know how to communicate to her perfectly. I know the perfect division of chores within the home. We don't even have kids yet, but, we, but I already know how we're going to parent them perfectly because we are so aligned in oneness that we're ready to make a run at this with perfection. If, if that's you, I need to get time with you so that I can learn and glean from you because that is not uh, anyone that I've met in the world as we know it as it pertains to, to their unpacking of what marriage is. Rather, on your wedding day, you're declared to be one flesh, and then for the rest of your life, you grow to become what you've been declared to be, functionally on the ground, so to speak. That's the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you've been positionally declared holy in Jesus Christ. Now, you get to spend the rest of your life functionally becoming what you've been positionally declared to be. And, and that's significant because if you, if you get that wrong, then what happens is rather than live out of a position of acceptance, you'll live in the pursuit of acceptance with respect to your relationship to God. We get to spend the rest of our lives becoming what we've been declared to be holy, not because it makes us right with God, but because we've been made right 
with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Number three, if your trust and hope is in Jesus Christ, you share in a heavenly calling. You share in Christ himself. You share in the Holy Spirit. You've been called into a relationship of love, intimacy, and joy with the living God of the universe. You share in the promise of a future rest in the presence of Jesus Christ and the uninterrupted enjoyment of him forever. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is what we've been talking about for weeks now. That word consider means so much more than just to think about. It means in the original Greek to to behold. It, It means to fix your gaze, your attention in such a way that you feel the significance, you feel the weightiness of the object of your gaze. Some of you are getting tired of this illustration, but if you're new, I want you to hear this. Um, About a month ago, my family and I, we went to the beach. My wife, myself, our two daughters, they're three and two years old. Um, Yes, our life is insane, but it's awesome. Um, And when we were at the beach, uh, it was a Wednesday evening. Uh, We got out. We went for a walk. The sun was setting to our right, uh, and yet the moon was in the sky, visible to our left at the same time. And we're walking, picking up shells, looking at weird creatures that are burying themselves in the sand. And all of a sudden, my oldest daughter just screams, Daddy, Daddy, it's the moon. It's the moon, Daddy. Look, Daddy, do you see it? Do you see the moon? I look up, and there it is. To me, I've seen it a thousand times. My daughter, for the first time in her life, doesn't see it in a book or on a screen, but rather hanging from the cosmos. And it blows her mind such that she can't help but just declare the excellencies of what she's beholding. Thursday night, the next night, we go out. We go for a walk on the beach. Takes a little less time Thursday than it did on Wednesday. A few minutes into the walk. Daddy! Daddy, it's the moon! Look, Daddy! Look! Do you see it? Yeah, baby. Saw it yesterday. And, and, and she didn't say this, but it, with her eyes, it was as if she was saying... But this is not Wednesday, Daddy. It's Thursday. It's a new day. And the moon's up again, and it is to be beheld and marveled at. And she did it for the next several days, and she's still doing it. Whenever she's up late enough to look in the sky, and it's not cloudy, which, by the way, when it is, she is terribly disappointed. But when the sky is clear and she sees the moon, she goes berserk over it. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see and buy into. We're talking about beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ such that it affects us, such that it changes us, such that it shapes us. Behold, fix your gaze on this Jesus. And he goes on to describe Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Moses was considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest of all Hebrews, really. This is the guy who, if you've read the Old Testament, you know, was was miraculously preserved from birth, the guy to whom God spoke out of a burning bush. I've never experienced that. Again, if you have, we're getting coffee this week. I wanna hear about that moment for you. This is the guy who God used to free his people in the Exodus, the guy who God used to part the Red Sea, the guy who met with God on Mount Sinai and brought the Ten Commandments to God's people. 
Moses was kind of a big deal to the, the original audience of this letter. Using the language of verse 1, Moses was both an apostle and high priest. I think John Piper's really helpful here. He sums up the, the, the role of an apostle and a high priest with this sentence. He says, we need a word from God and a way to God. An apostle brings us a word from God. A priest makes a way to God. Moses was an apostle in that he brought a word from God to the Israelites. According to the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, it says, this is God speaking, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. The great apostle Moses, who brought a word from God, mouth to mouth, from God's lips to Moses' ears, to the Israelites. But he was also a high priest in that he interceded on behalf of the Israelites to God. You see one of the clearest examples of that in Exodus chapter 32. Beginning in verse 11, uh, the Israelites have fashioned... uh, an image that they have worshipped, a golden calf. And in, in response to that, we pick up the story. It says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And we're told that in response to Moses' intercession on behalf of the Israelites, that the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. That very simply, through Moses, God provided a word and a way. If we're going to get anything out of a passage like this, and I think it's challenging for us because we're, we're crossing thousands of years of history here, we've got to get our minds around the fact that Moses was considered the greatest of the greatest for those who would have originally read this letter. That at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you, you get a description of what likely would have been written on Moses' tombstone, maybe preached at his funeral. You get these words, Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I mean, some even believe that Moses was superior to angels. You begin to see what the author is doing here. He's already shown Jesus to be greater than the angels, and now he's moving his way through the list. Now it's on to Moses. And so the author of Hebrews declares that Jesus, like Moses, is both an apostle and a high priest. We need a word from God and a way to God. Jesus is the final word from God, and he's the only sufficient way to God. As the perfect apostle sent by the Father with a message and a mission to accomplish, and as the perfect high priest now interceding at the Father's right hand on your behalf, on my behalf. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, because 
He, Jesus, was perfectly human and perfectly divine. He knows both man and God. Thus he is able to speak to men for God. There's the apostle piece. And to intercede to God for men. There's the high priest piece. He is the one person through whom man comes to God and God to man. That Jesus is faithful just as Moses was faithful. But the author of Hebrews is not looking to just show the continuity between Jesus and Moses. He's also looking to show the discontinuity. That Jesus and Moses are not on the same playing field. Jesus is exponentially greater than Moses. So he goes on to say in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all, house, all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's the greater apostle and high priest. He's the greater apostle in that he is the final and ultimate word from God. And he's the greater high priest in that he sits exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high interceding for us. That the great Moses is but a shadow of which Jesus is the glorious reality. Moses is, uh, he's referred to as a, a faithful servant in God's house whose purpose was to testify to Jesus. You see that in verse 5? Not just to testify through his faithfulness, but also through his very writings. We talked about this as we prepared for this very sermon series when we spent a week in, in Luke chapter 24, the the story of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus encounters a couple of disciples uh, walking down this road, and, and he engages them in conversation about the things that have happened in Jerusalem over the last few days, uh, namely Jesus' crucifixion. And the resurrected Jesus uh, engages them at one point in the conversation and says to them, in the midst of their misunderstanding of all that, that's happened over the last few days, he says, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see it elsewhere in scripture. Jesus says the following words to the Jews who are persecuting him in John 5. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he... Moses wrote of me, Jesus. That Jesus is the subject matter, according to John chapter 5, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That Moses was a servant of God whose purpose was to testify to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who is the fulfillment of everything Moses talked about in the first five books of the Bible. That Moses testified to the coming Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who came to rescue us. Another way the author of Hebrews declares that Jesus is greater than Moses. says Moses was a, a servant in God's house, meaning God's people. Moses was part of God's people. Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 3, is over God's house as the very builder of of God's people. The argument is, is very simple. It's that the builder is greater than that which he or she builds. That Chip and Joe are better than any fixer-upper they've ever made. Consider creation. Yes, my daughter is 
undeniably infatuated with the moon right now. But wait till she has the capacity to understand that there's an intelligent designer who made that thing and holds it up in the sky by the word of his power. The creator is greater than the creation. Think about it this way. Going back to the first four verses of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus created the very people among whom Moses served, including Moses himself. He's the creator of all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moses kept breathing because Jesus kept putting breath in Moses' lungs. But it's not just about Jesus' supremacy in regard to, to creation. It's also about his supremacy in regard to the church. When you see that language, God's house, that's synonymous with God's people. Jesus is building a house. We call it the church, which is why you have passages like this in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul says it this way to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2, 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, he's talking about Jesus here, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That because Jesus is the builder of the house, nothing powerful happens in the church apart from Jesus Christ. Nothing. Paul says, in Ephesians 4, that Christ is the head and the church the body. And it's Christ the head who makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Nothing powerful happens in the church apart from Christ. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot do a thing about it. Nothing powerful happens in the church apart from Christ. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and we are living stones. The whole building crumbles to the ground without a cornerstone. Nothing powerful happens in the church apart from Christ. Jesus is the chief shepherd who's established pastor elders like me as under shepherds to love and lead the sheep. But I promise you, if it rests on my shoulders, we're done for. Without the chief shepherd, the flock is without hope. Nothing powerful happens in the church apart from Christ makes it all the more detrimental when we abandon Jesus to try to build the church. It's counterintuitive. It's unbiblical. Christ alone accomplishes everything in the building of the house. And we are the house, including Moses. Jesus is the builder. The author of Hebrews goes on to say it very explicitly. Second part of verse 6. He says, and we are his house. There it is. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 
The end of verse 6 establishes the beginning of a second warning that we'll look at next week. We are his house, you and me. We are his people, you and me. We are his church, you and me. If, again, there's this, there's this call not to drift, going back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But here the author of Hebrews gives a little bit more explanation of what drifting means. It's about not drifting in terms of where we place our confidence. It's about not drifting in terms of what we glory in, what we boast in. It's proving your faith genuine by, by continuing to put your confidence in Jesus. It's proving your faith genuine by continuing to glory in the superior Son of God. We're meant to ask ourselves the following kinds of questions. What am I beholding most these days and being changed by most? Is it Jesus? What's the moon in my life? If people were to take a, a proverbial walk with me, like I took a walk with our daughter on the beach, and they were to listen in, what would I declare the excellencies of most? What would they see me beholding, changing me, shaping me, affecting me? Is it Jesus? In what am I most inclined to put my confidence? What, what would I attach to the word rescuer in my life? Deliverer in my life? That which can... Uh, can save me from whatever my personal hell may be? Is it Jesus? Is there anything I'm presently going through today that threatens to undo my confidence in the superior Son of God? In what am I most inclined to glory, to boast? Is it Jesus? Is there anything that threatens to, uh, to undo the steadfastness of my hope in Him? And ultimately, those reflective questions are, they're not meant to cause us to navel gaze. Please hear me. Those reflective questions are meant to cause us to, to repent. And by repent, I simply mean to turn to Jesus, to behold Jesus, to declare our confidence in Jesus yet again, to boast in Jesus, to see and savor Jesus, to declare the moon. It's the moon, Daddy. It's the moon all over again. I know, baby. You saw it yesterday. But it's a new day, Daddy. And it's the moon, and it's just as glorious as it was yesterday, today. Can I let you in on a little secret if you're not a Christ follower on what it is to become a Christian? To become a Christian is simply to do what my daughter did that first night on the beach. To live out the Christian life is to do what my daughter did the second and third and fourth nights on that very same beach. Another way to say it, you become a Christian by doing for the first time that which the rest of us in this room are doing for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, the ten thousandth time. To turn to Jesus. To behold Jesus. To declare your confidence in Jesus as Savior and King. To see and savor Jesus. That's where we're going for the next several months. Just going to, like a jewel, just keep spinning this jewel that is the person and work of Jesus Christ to look at one unique facet after another such that we might find ourselves beholding, marveling, seeing and savoring. And my hope would be in such a way that it affects us, that it shapes us, that it changes us.